0: Shalom, and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Halakha 101 class taught by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. We are going to continue here with some uh, good kashrut laws. I will just warn you in advance that some of what we're about to learn Uh, in terms of koshering is going to be very different than what you've probably understood from your koshering practices today. Um, I don't think we'll get into the nitty gritty of why that might be specifically today, um, but I just want you to know from the outset that some of what you're going to hear from the Shulchan Aruch about specifically koshering metal is going to be quite different than how we think about koshering metal today um, or how we just think about using metal in general today uh, versus what it used to be used for uh, and how it used to be crafted and um, and uh, obtained in in the past. So we are going to continue... Let me share my screen with Siman 121, Saif 6, and it's funny, I just taught Shulchan Aruch at Minyan, so I was like, oh, this is not what we were doing, but different. Different things, different different classes. This is where we're at for this stuff. Um, so we are going to, just to remind you um, where we're at in terms of the koshering kind of experience here, we are now talking about things that potentially could have been Use, they're, they're bridging um, toiveling and koshering at this point, right? So we are potentially talking about things that have been used by idol worshipers in the past or just new things that you are acquiring. A few of you sent me an article um, about whether or not you have to <laughs> kosher a uh, seasoned iron skillet uh and and we will get to that a little bit later. We're not going to look at that right now, but I do appreciate that so many of you sent me the same exact article. That's when you know that you're really getting through on a topic. Uh, so we're going to we're going to look right now at metal. So I'm gonna for the most part read uh, read kind of back and forth from the Hebrew and the English, so it's. A little bit difficult for me to see both at the same time and also see all of you. So uh, I might switch to a different language just based on what I can see on my screen. So metal vessels, there are those that say so there are those that say that even if a small part of the metal vessel was used That you, and it's, and the English is, um, is adding in here that isur means forbidden foods, not just for forbidden practice, but really for foods that are not kosher, that the entire vessel is then forbidden. So we're gonna come across some of these, uh, terms. This one is not one of them, but where you're gonna, you're going to understand that if a little bit of it was affected, the whole thing has now been affected. That goes much more so for toivaline than it does for kosherine. Um, but there are certain items and certain materials for which this would be the same case for kosherine as well. So, bemiksato acerculo, which is that even, even if just a little bit of it was affected by the forbidden food, it's now forbidden as, as if the whole thing was touched by forbidden food. Because something on part of it is like something hot on all of it. So if, you, if just a little bit of bacon got on a little bit of a corner of a pan, it's as if the bacon was smeared all over the pan, right? That it had been touched all over, probably because something that is hot it has, has that effect on a pan, right? If your pan is cold and for some reason a piece of cold bacon falls on it, the chances of the other side of the pan being affected by it are, are slim because it probably stays in one place, the oil is not dripping, et cetera, et cetera. But if something is hot, if the pan is hot or if the item is hot, as we've talked about before, that's gonna pose more of a difficulty than if the item is cold. With regards to koshering it, it doesn't have the effect unless you kosher the entire thing, whether it is through dunking in boiling water or whitening by fire. So again, we're talking now about hagala or Libun. So what this, what this part of the Shulchan Aruch is getting at is that you need to kosher the entire thing. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to kosher this one corner or this one edge, I guess you would call it if it's round of the pan, you have to kosher the entire thing. It also works that way in terms of koshering, right? You can't just kosher one part of a pan and say the whole pan is koshered. You have to actually kosher the entirety of that pan. So it works both for food and also for koshering that just a little part of it does not uh, does not entitle you to say the entirety has been affected or been koshered, but rather uh, you have to do the entire. Is stainless steel considered to be metal? Great question, Renee. So again, going back to to how how we need to read this kind of into the 21st century, it really depends. So yes, it is considered metal. But to go into a question that actually Bob sent me in an email, right, many of our many of our metals and many of our appliances are now treated in certain ways that back then they were not. So stainless steel could just be stainless steel or it might be treated in such a way that it now has the effect of a different kind of item. I for example have a metal um pan that has like a um, uh, non-stick, that's what I was going to say, anti-stick, that's not right, Um, a non-stick surface that is considered something different than just plain metal because now it has a more porous uh, kind of lining to it. So let me just, um, one probably can't get a metal pot white hot on a stove, right? How do you know when it is hot enough? Great. So if you have a pot that, sorry, well, okay, so for a pot, you would do hagala, actually. You would use boiling water and let it go over the sides, which we haven't talked about so much, but we'll talk about that at some point. In terms of a pan, though, I'll answer your question in terms of a pan, you can you can get a pan super, super hot on the stove if the handle of the pan is, is not able to go into the oven. So what I do in those cases is I turn it up as high as it possibly can go, you know, without burning my house down, and have it get very hot on the bottom, and then I actually turn the pot over. Obviously, it's not how you use a pot typically, but turn the pot over so that the the fire of the stovetop can then affect the top of the pan. If you're dealing with an electric stovetop, this is much harder to do. It's harder to kosher on an electric stovetop. Um so some people would use a blowtorch, which a lot of rabbinical students get very excited about because who else in and, and what what other profession do they tell you to buy a blowtorch? I have never bought a blowtorch, but this is one way in which you might you might want to use one because then you can put the fire on the inside as well as on the outside. The other option is if you have a pan that doesn't have any plastic on it, so that metal pan oh. that I referred to before. I can put inside my oven uh, and let it get very, very hot and then obviously take it out very carefully, um, but making sure that the entirety of that pan has then become hot. So that's how, that's how you would do that. It's how you would do it with pans that can go in the oven. It's also how you would do it with baking sheets uh, to make sure that they get very hot as well. Um, plumbing, connecting copper pipes. I'm not sure what that's a reference to, Bob, but I if you want to unmute, you can. Everyone's laughing though, so maybe I just don't understand.
1: That's what you need a torch for. Oh oh. <laughs> for those of us that do plumbing.
0: That's very good. Thank you. Yes. I thought I thought you were talking about koshering your plumbing oh. pipes. And I was like, No, you def- that's one step too far, I think.
1: Oh, or if you're making cream delay.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So that is another reason you might have a uh a blowtorch. Okay, um, great. So the Ramah, the Ashkenazi voice, says here, "Vedaka And of course, if you use the entire thing, right? This is obviously um, obvious. Not to be redundant, but this is clear to us if you use the entire thing, then obviously you need to kasha the entire thing or if the tray food touched the entire pan, then obviously you also have to um, assume that it touched the entire pan. So we're getting this piece of uh, of really of gemara back again here in our Shulchan Aruch that says the way in which it swallows up the item is the way that that it's... uh, expelled from the item so if you know that only a little bit of it was used um it says here only partially then you you kosher it in the way that you kosher that part in the way that it was used because kevalo kach but this the rama is also saying that then you don't have to kosher the whole thing my guess is that here the rama is not talking about you know, one side of a pan versus another side of a pan, but rather maybe a lid versus the bottom, or um, if you have like a double boiler, the top versus the bottom, something like that, that that can be detached rather than you know the right the right side of the circle of the pan versus the left side of the circle of the pan. Um, though obviously if it's big enough and this is the case you can just kosher that part of the pan that was that was affected. Uh, Any questions on this, thoughts, comments? Nope. Okay, table, yeah, go ahead. All right, very
2: naive, high level. Okay. Is this, because I always thought, when I thought about things about the rule about 60, like one in 60, which I think is a meat dairy thing, that if you think it's less than one in 60, is this so much more rigorous because... Rigorous is not the right word. Is this so much more strict because it has to do with things that are trafe, which is so much worse than meat getting into dairy or dairy getting into meat?
0: So you're talking about um, the, this idea of, of 160th of something trafing up an uh, a dish, right? So the the classic example is... That if you're cooking a beef stew and you walk across the kitchen with a baby bottle of milk, not of breast milk, but of regular milk, and somehow a drop of that milk gets into the pot of of um, beef stew, is it now a trace beef stew? And the answer is no, because there's this idea of batel bishishim, which means that it's canceled out in, in 60th, right, at the... It doesn't translate well into English, but but times sixty, right? This is the is the amount of beef stew versus the milk that dropped into it. Now, if you drop an entire carton of milk into the beef stew, no matter how big that beef stew is, you've you've gone over the batel beshishim, and so now it's a trafe now it's a treif dish. So it doesn't always have to do with trafe items, it just has to do with the way in which a um, a particular um, amount is being changed in terms of status. Uh, Rabbi Aaron Alexander used to always share the example when he was first starting to keep kosher, that he thought that batal bashishi meant that if you go to a tailgate and you know that most of the hot dogs that are being made, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hot dogs are being made, are trafe, but that there are also those that are being made that are kosher, can you eat the ones, that, not knowing which is which, can you just eat a hot dog because of batel bishishim? It's obviously not how that works. Um, it has to be something that, that is uh, mixed or somehow being effect, affecting the larger the larger item. So I hope that answers your question, but uh, but that's what batel bishishim is. That's what that cancellation in a 60th is. Okay. Herman's
3: join uh, Joanna. So I got two questions. One is this kind of kashering is what applies to Pesach as well as, well as like, I don't know, other forms of kashering?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so we we read last week. There was one line that said like, if you want more stringencies or if you want more details, go to the halacha of Passover. Um, so you'll get more details. But yeah, these are the basics that would also be used for Passover. It's just that there there's like a, a step further that you would go for certain things, not all things, when it comes to chametz because. Hamid isn't allowed, whereas just the changing from meat to milk or trafe to kosher um, is obviously a, a lesser um, strength. Uh, anyway, it, it's, it's less on the totem pole of, of Well,
3: My other question is, what defines a pot as opposed to a pan?
0: Yeah, great. So the way in which you use it. So a pot typically in the Shulchan Aruch is going to be something that has liquid in it, like for a soup or for cholent or pasta. They don't usually talk about pasta in the Shulchan Aruch, but, you know, something that, that has liquid in it that could bubble over because part of what they're going to talk about with a pot is that you fill it with water so that it can boil over the sides, whereas a pan very often what they're talking about is in terms of like, grilling or meat or something that can uh that that uh is affected by fire in terms of its cooking um but doesn't necessarily have the the um the volume I guess you would say for liquid
3: okay but but often pans are pots and pans are used sort of interchangeably so you might fry something in the pot like if you're making soup you would fry something first and then add liquid to it right yeah
0: Yeah. so when it comes to when it comes to koshering something like that it really depends in that case how you use it in terms of the cooking right not necessarily how you use it in terms of what's being cooked if that makes sense so for me when I if, even if I use a pan to potentially put liquid into it, if I'm you know deglazing a pan or if I'm cooking a pasta sauce with, I don't know whatever was in my pan that I'm cooking pasta sauce with, you can tell how often I cook pasta sauce. Uh, that is that is something that still would be koshered by using fire as opposed to water because I'm the, the item, the e-car, the, the essence of what's going into a pan is more that solid food than the liquid food, and therefore the the fire is going to affect it in terms of that kevalo kahpolto piece than, than liquid would. Also just in terms of um, access, right? Like what's realistic in terms of koshering, you wouldn't boil water in a, you might boil like a sauce obviously, but you wouldn't boil water to have it pour over in a pan, whereas in a pot you obviously would do that to let it to let it then go over the
3: sides.
0: Okay. So some of it is just kind of, um, co- not, not common sense in terms of that it's easy, but just like the way that you use the item and then the common sense around how you would then kosher it. Uh, Back Um
3: When you were talking about koshering an item by putting it in the oven. I'm yeah. um, yeah. just wondering does, I mean, if you're putting something that's tray in the oven, does that affecting the kosher root of the oven? How would right, you handle exactly. that?
0: Great question. So you would just like with anything that you're koshering, you would want to wash it first, and then you would want to let it sit for 24 hours, and then you do the koshering process. So even if the the item itself um, is um, has been affected, right, has been touched by something that is trafe Now that it's been washed and is being put into an oven after 24 hours, you don't have to be worried about what's called zea, which literally just means sweat, but any kind of precipitation that might come from the item that would affect the koshering of the oven. If you're worried that it wasn't able to be cleaned off enough, or if you're worried that um, the the fire itself is going to let off some of that which couldn't be cleaned off. Then, of course, you could kosher your oven. Um, you could also start it on the stovetop and then put it in the oven. Um, that's a really it's a really good it's a really good point a really good question that kind of goes back actually to what Diane was asking in terms of just the common sense around what's the thing what what did it touch. What are you now trying to use it for? Um, and if you ever are in that situation, I'm happy to I'm happy to answer a specific, <laughs> a specific case. Uh, but that would be my general answer. Yeah, Joanna.
3: I just realized my question is a little off the text, but it is very much related to what we were just discussing about this whole 160th principle. And um, the example that you brought of rabbi alexander at the tailgate party um isn't i'm not sure if i have this right right but that that's like that this whole concept of the 160th is like an after the fact kind of thing if it happened by accident right like i can't say like oh, I know I'm making chicken soup and I've got 100 ounces of liquid in my pot and I like it a little bit creamy, so I'll put in an ounce, right? So even right. if it's one mixture, right, it still has to be sort of that accidental thing that like after the fact I realized, oh, my gosh, I made a mistake, right? Like oh. you can't kind of ignore from the get-go yeah, if you yeah. just put in a drop of –
0: correct right you can't you can't like by accident walk by that beef stew with like a little bit of cream and just kind of like <laughs> throw it in to see what might happen um yeah no it has to be after the fact it has, it has to be accidental it has to be what we would call the right it has to be um something that it was not intentionally done and and it also needs to be not not unknown, right, if that happens with the stew and you know that the drop went in, you know that it has happened. So it's not that it's unknown, but it's definitely unintentional. Um, you can't decide, oh, I like a little bit of that bacon flavor still in my meat, so I'm just going to take – I'm going to make a lot of meat and put just a teeny tiny bit of bacon in. That's not how that works. Um, yeah. Mike.
4: Um, it's my understanding also that – that uh, Although you can't put it in intentionally, it has to be a mistake. But the mistake doesn't have to be just accidentally spilling. For example, you could reach into the refrigerator, think you were picking up a carton of uh, oat milk or, yeah. or 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 soy milk or something, right, right. and it turns out it's really cow's milk. Yeah. But you miss, you made a mistake, and you pick up the wrong carton, and you pour it a little bit in. Yeah. That even though you poured it intentionally, it still would be accidental. Right.
0: Yes, exactly. Right. It's without your knowledge, right? So that's still a vad situation in which you did not intentionally reach for the creamer. You reached for something that you thought was almond milk, et cetera. And it just happened to be that you noticed as you put a drop in that it was the wrong, the wrong item. And this very often happens, by the way, and this is don't, don't everybody freak out. I'm sure you're all doing this very well at home. Um, but this very often happens with margarine brands, actually. Um, very often a margarine brand, this just happened to my family recently, uh, will all of a sudden turn dairy. Uh, not not because necessarily they've added dairy to it, but maybe they've decided that they're going to be making it on the same dairy products, I mean, uh, tools, which... Depending on your kosher level, you might not think the dairy equipment is the same as a dairy uh, item to be eaten, but margarine or, or non-dairy butter supplements, whatever you want to call it, does not have to be margarine I guess, will very often uh, change their hectures to dairy. So you always should check margarine hectures if, if it matters to you. Um, and and and, make sure that they remain par of if that's why you're using them uh because that is the most at least in my life that has been the place that I've made the most mistakes, thinking that something to Mike's point that I'm grabbing is dairy free and in fact it ends up being either full dairy or at least have some dairy in it
4: as a follow up yeah uh, not only would the would the resulting product if it was a mistake. Not only would the resulting product still be, uh, okay to eat. For example, let's say it was, it was a, a, a meat meal and you yeah. put milk in, but also the pot, the utensil would not need to be right. koshered. Correct. Okay.
0: Correct. Yeah. So some people will choose to kosher it because they're worried that, the stirring, you know, that the, the spoon itself might have contracted more than that one sixtieth. Right, people people might choose to, to caution out of an abundance of caution. But yes, if you are still able to eat the food based on that bashish bashishin, based on that one sixtieth rule, then the 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 vessels themselves should also be fine. Um, yeah, is also saying that also ch- semi-sweet chocolate chips, right? So chocolate chips are also another one that's very often changed from par of to dairy without anybody sending you a email. Um, what was the, qu- oh, Esther, Esther just asked, is dairy equipment, is, is dairy equipment par of or dairy? Well, this is, this is kind of an argument of the century. So... Dairy equipment, it depends. <laughs> it depends on how you feel about um, equipment being used both to to manufacture but also to cook. Because remember that we don't know if when something is being manufactured it's hot or cold. Unless it's like lettuce. Um, so dairy equipment, for example, Oreos, are part of but made on dairy equipment. Which is why Oreos or Nabisco still say that Oreos are dairy. But Camperma and Ojai, at least, I can't speak to all Campermas, but Camperma and Ojai, once they found out that it was dairy equipment, allowed kids to have Oreos after meat meals because it was dairy equipment, not dairy ingredients. What I've heard most halakhicists say about dairy equipment is that you wouldn't eat the item with meat in the same sitting. So you wouldn't eat an Oreo, and I know this is a weird example, but you wouldn't eat an Oreo at the same time that you're eating a piece of steak, but that you don't have to wait the three hours after eating the piece of steak to eat the Oreo. So the dairy equipment kind of still still makes for a a uh, right, still makes for some kind of break and some kind of differentiation, but it's not momish dairy, right? It's not specifically dairy. It's not like eating a block of cheese or a or a slab of butter on your steak. It's a it's a different process. Um, okay, Diane and Larry, then I'm going to answer Jeff's question, and then we're going to get back to the text. Because <laughs> now we're going on a bunch of tangents. <laughs> okay.
5: It's enough to turn you into a, uh, I don't know what, Here's a funny story that I think some of you may have heard. When we were living in Mozambique and shopping in South Africa, we went to buy disposable aluminum pans. Uh-huh. Billy knows this story. Dispos- <laughs> disposable aluminum pans. And we reached down and got them from the store and they had a hexer on them. Yeah. And they were kosher dairy. The aluminum pans. Okay. That's the story. We never figured it out. We used them.
0: Yeah, why dairy? The kosher part, the kosher I mean I don't I think it's silly, but the kosher part I understand. If you go to any kosher section in Ralph's or any other kosher market around Passover, you'll see jewelry cleaner that has a hexer on it. So I know that there are some shampoo. I mean, it's like ridiculous the amount of things that will have hexers on them for <laughs> Passover specifically. Dairy is a weird one. The, the hexer to me, means that someone just said this is this was made in a place where no other food was made, and so we're going to put a hexer on it the dairy part is bizarre. Maybe it was being made near a dairy farm. I mean, I don't know that that's a really weird. (laughs) That's a really weird one. Jackie said maybe they're pre greased with something dairy. Yeah, but like, I, I don't think you could have an aluminum pan that's not then like refrigerated. I mean, anyway, whatever. Or a dairy farmer produced them. Yeah, but that wouldn't matter unless it was being like, like made with dairy, right? Like, yeah, the hands of a dairy farmer doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but maybe he thought so. Yeah, well, that's that's possible. Um, can, I, I mean, can I then just go back to the text?
5: And maybe this is not exactly what the what what you were referring to. But some some of us who who are a little bit less stringent when we eat out. Yeah. We'll go out to a restaurant, and perhaps we'll order eggs. Yeah. But anything that's made on a grill. Quite frankly, is probably no matter how they clean it, whatever. Yeah. But even if they did clean it, the grill is, is one clean. It's one, one, um, I don't know what the word is. Yeah. One, one vessel. So even if they tell you, no, only on this, on this, on this side of the grill, we only make this by the fact, by virtue of the fact that it's being heated up, the, the bacon or sausage or whatever else is put on the other side is in effect transferring over to that side. So it's a good reason to not go to a restaurant and order fried eggs.
0: Yes. If you want me to ruin fried eggs for you, I'm happy to. But yeah, I mean, yes, anything, right? Like a tuna melt also, right? If people eat hot dairy out, they know that unless they are asking for their hot dairy to be made on aluminum foil, which some people do, some people say, can you cook my salmon in an aluminum foil so that it's not directly touching the grill, they know that there might be some kind of transfer between your tuna melt, which for all intents and purposes is a kosher item, with the patty melt that for all intents and purposes is definitely treif. Right next to it. So for those people who eat hot dairy out, that's that is just a thing that that is known and that you either kind of just forget about while you're eating your hot dairy or you're aware of and you're not as worried about. Um, there are ways in which if anybody really wants to read a chuva about hot dairy, There is what is fondly known as the Pizza Chuva, which was written really for USY um, students uh, to be able to eat pizza in any state while traveling on wheels. Uh, But this is a, it's a Chuva that talks about like the questions that you need to ask and the things that you need to know about eating hot dairy out if you are trying to keep kosher at non-hectured restaurants. But still be keeping kosher in terms of the items that you are eating at those restaurants. Um, okay. Jeff, Jeff asked a question about blood in a blood spot in eggs. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna get to that. That's different than batel beshishim in terms of the one sixtieth. And it's also different in terms of mamish trait. Like it, it's not, you should not eat it, but it also isn't bacon. Right. It's not, it's not to the, to the point of it being something that, um, you need to completely do away with it. Now, would, would you start over again? Yeah, probably. It's why people break eggs into a glass bowl before they put them into a pan. And some people don't. And sometimes they're lucky and never have a blood spot. And sometimes they're not lucky and they have to start all over again. Um, if you don't notice it or if you're not sure that it's blood and you think it might be something else, it's probably okay uh, again it's not like it's not like real trafe um you're not supposed to eat it, but there there are many more kind of what we would call suffache right doubts around it than if you were to have a slab of bacon uh in your home and on a pan uh let me just look at these other chats um hot dairy would be a great name for a classroom. Great. Okay. Uh, Bob or Diane?
1: (laughs) Yeah, a couple of different points. One is my understanding about the things like the uh, Trader Joe's chocolate chips was the manufacturer changed the way they were cleaning the equipment. So if they were steam cleaning it, the inspectors were okay with that being part of when they were done steam cleaning. If they went to some other kind of cleaning mechanism, maybe just hot air blowing it out, They were not so happy with it, so they thought there might be some dairy chips left behind.
0: Interesting. Don't
1: know for sure. I know there was, I think we visited some place back east where they did one run of kosher, I want to say salad dressings, a couple of times a month. And they had to steam clean the entire process line before they ran that. Not that there was anything non-kosher or anything else. It's just that that's what they had to do to get the extra on it. Yeah, yeah. Our, our favorite local restaurant, uh, we learned at one point, um, did not cook their bacon on the same flat top they cooked, say, their grilled potatoes.
0: Right. Because yeah. the
1: owner of the restaurant said, I don't want the taste transfer. Yeah. So now what that in terms of the omelet pans, I don't know. Yeah,
0: in Los Angeles, really California in general, but Los Angeles and Northern California I can speak to very specifically, um, because there are so many people who are vegetarian or vegan, most places will not, unless it's like, you know, an old diner that is just going to do what they've been doing for years and years, most places will not mix Their hot griddle items and things like french fries or, uh, tuna melts, et cetera, that they know might be, um, might be ordered by someone who's vegetarian. You can always ask, I always ask specifically about french fries, um, but also if I'm going to order hot dairy, I always say, is this made on the same pan, grill, whatever? Uh, and very often it's not because they just, there's just too many vegetarians. (laughs) When you go to the Midwest, all, all bets are off. I mean, you, you basically can't eat hot dairy out without it being, without touching some kind of meat. Um, but, but that's in, in Los Angeles and in California in general and, and the West Coast, Portland and Seattle are also pretty good about this. Uh, because of just the clientele, they try to make things separate. Also, if you find out that French fries, I learned this at a, at a restaurant recently, actually, Um, Not in Los Angeles, but in Laguna. If you go to a restaurant, you order French fries, and you start off the conversation with the waiter or waitress, and you say, I'm vegetarian, and then you order French fries, they will say to you, those French fries are made in the same, you know, oil as our chicken fingers or whatever. And you can ask for vegetarian french fries and they'll make them in a different, in a different batch of oil. So without, you know, charging you seven million dollars, like the, they, they know to to expect this. And that's much more quote normal than saying, can you cook my fish and foil where they're just looking at you like you're a crazy person? So that, that is, that is something that you can do. Okay. Very quickly back and then we're going to get back to our regularly scheduled programming.
4: (laughs) Just real
5: quickly. When I worked for a meat fa- meat manufacturer, yeah. they would do the halal meat first, yeah, yeah. and then shift to the the the, the non the more of the trafer stuff. Right? Yeah. Which is FYI.
0: yeah, yeah. Thank you. That for sure. And and for some people that's great, and for other people they're like, okay, but I don't know for sure. And you know, there's always just a doubt. And different people are gonna are gonna make different uh, decisions based on that. But yeah, you're definitely right. Um what Diane just put in the chat about the blood spot is is the case, right? That if you are if you are getting eggs that could not have been fertilized and anything you might see in the egg will not be a blood spot. Um, but if you are getting eggs from a farm where, you know, the men and women uh roam around together, then you then you have to be nervous about or not nervous, but you have to be more uh, aware of the blood spot potential. Okay, let's get... Well, hear- there
4: has to be a mechitza at the...
0: Yeah, all right, oh, you're okay, right. right. Right, you have to make sure there's a mechitza at the... Because, at the- you know, it might lead to mixed dancing among those chickens. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we all know what happens with mixed dancing of chickens. Okay, so now we're actually going to get... I think actually Joanna was the one who pointed this out last time. We're going to... Everyone had... 800 questions about soil and putting things into dirt. We're going to see that here a little bit. Um, it doesn't say why. So we still don't know why, but it is going to bring it up here, which is probably why some of you experienced it, um, as kids or still do it in your, in your own lives. Okay. I can't see any Hebrew right this time just because the English is so, uh, long. So I'm just going to read from the English. And if something seems out of place, I will scroll back up. So an, a used knife. So it probably says, oh man, second word in, and I'm already doing this. Hold on a second. Yeah, sakiniyachen. So an old, an old knife, which means just a knife that has been used, right? Not one that you just took out of its packaging. Whether it's big or small, which is acquired from an idol worshiper, so not a knife that you made or not a knife that you acquired from someone who is Jewish, if you want to use it to cut something cold, if it doesn't have any dimples or holes or like a serrated knife, for example, thrust it hard, thrust it into hard ground 10 times, right? So just all you have to do, is, anybody watching the video is going to think that I'm an axe murderer. But um You just put it into the ground a few different times to make holes in the ground, right? So that the dirt gets all over the, the item. But you don't just stick it there. You, you put it into the ground a few different times. Um, and every single thrust must be into hard ground. So it can't be mud, right? It has to be, it has to be ground that is, that is dry and that is going to, um, take to the knife, so to speak. Therefore, one may not thrust into a place where there was already another thrust, right? So that's what I said before, but just to reiterate, if you're making these holes into the ground, you can't put it back into the same hole. So, right, imagine like walking with a stick on sand. If you've made a puncture into the sand, you don't then put the stick back into that same puncture, you make it on another side because that's what's gonna make it um, stick into the ground. And even if you cut a sharp food, like a radish, this is sufficient. So it says radish here. What we When we talk about sharp foods, we're talking about like jalapenos or onions. Radishes are also sharp, but we don't think about them in the same kind of way. Something that transfers heat, that transfers a kind of taste that would then go onto something else. If you cut an onion and then you don't wash it off and you cut – by slice of bread, your bread is going to have some of that taste of that onion without you trying because it's going to bring that spiciness from the onion onto the bread. So what the Shulchan Aruch is saying here is that this works for all kinds of food, even those that have any kind of transfer. Now, remember that we're only talking about cold food so far. So we're not talking about cutting meat and we're not talking about cutting um, really anything that's being that's that is coming out cooked that you would then uh, cut. So we're just talking about cold things at the moment. The Ramah, Rav Moshe Israel says, and to use it regularly, don't diminish that which is done for other vessels, for which we dunk in boiled water, even for cold. So what the Ramah is saying here is, don't, don't think that just by putting it in the ground that you've done enough. If you're going to use this knife a lot, you also need to kosher it. You also need to put it into hot water to make it a koshered item. You can't just put it into the ground and say, oh, that was good enough. And now I'm going to go on with it. However, if you're at someone's home who either doesn't keep kosher or who you think might have used this as a spiritual ritual item, you can put it into the ground ten times. You can take it out and you can use it. So the Rama is making the uh, the is, is adding a caveat. Let's just say that if this knife. Is then acquired by you and is going to be used over and over again. It's not good enough to just put it in the dirt. You can put it in the dirt if you choose, but you also need to actually kosher it with hagalah to put it into boiling water. I believe it goes back into the Shulchan Aruch here. Yeah. Okay. So we're back in the Shulchan Aruch. As it was explained, if there are dimples, right? So if the knife has any kind of groove in it. Um, or you want to cut something hot or slaughter with it, right? So, first of all, it's a little bit bizarre that it even says or slaughter with it, because to slaughter it has to be a smooth knife. It can't have any dimples, but it's basically giving the the Shulchan Aruch is basically giving you all of the different ways in which you might use a knife. Um a knife that's gonna use that's gonna be used for slaughter cannot have any dimples or any kind of nicks in it because it needs to be as smooth on the animal as possible to not harm uh, or I guess you're harming to not to not bring more harm uh, or pain to the animal uh, but if you know if this is a serrated knife or something like that uh, or is going to be used with something hot then uh, you have to do it through fire so we don't see this so often um, I actually don't know what a whetstone is, but I'm guessing it's just you would have to sharpen the knife uh, on every surface. So you don't you don't typically see this happening with knives these days. Oh, Bob, do you know what a whetstone is? Is that why you raised your hand?
1: Yeah, I have a bunch of them. Oh,
0: great. <laughs> that's, you, that's
1: one of the things you use to sharpen knives and any other cutting utensil.
0: Oh, that's what it's called.
1: Like Kisel or a, a plane okay. or all kinds of things.
0: Right. I right. just didn't know that that's what it was called. But great, fantastic. So so you would you can sharpen the knife. That is something that you that that we do see done before the koshering process because in a certain way you are you are eliminating a, a skin, so to speak, right? Like a layer of that knife by sharpening it. You are getting rid of some of those grooves. You are making the grooves that you want to be there sharper. Um, and anything that the knife has been used for is now having a, a certain kind of cleansing process, though I understand it's not actually cleaning it. And we don't see knives go into fire too often these days. uh I think for a whole host of reasons, probably because a lot of our knives couldn't do that, uh, and also because we're not using knives in the same kind of way. We ourselves are not slaughtering animals. Um, if you are, you should. I don't know anything about that. Uh, and in terms of dimples or serrated knives, you, we have a way in which we can deal with a knife. That, that you can dunk it in water and let it be koshered. Our dimples are not the same kind of um, grooves, so to speak, that you would find in a knife. Now, I have a knife. I use ceramic knives. So I can't kosher those for Passover, for example. But I have ceramic knives, and one of them got, I don't know actually how, <laughs> but one of them got a slit in it. So I can still use it. It doesn't affect the way in which I cut at all. But the inside of it has uh, now has a groove that wasn't there before. So if if it were not ceramic, I would not be able to kosher that knife because it now has a slit in it. Unless I could put it into a fire, but again, most of our knives can't do that any longer. Um, so some of this is, uh, I think, just based on what what knives used to be made of back in back in the day, and also how they used to be used. Um, Okay, so the Ramah says there are those who say that sharpening this way is only to cut something cold, not for something hot. And this custom is a priori. So uh, this is what we would do today. So this is only for if you're cutting something cold, not something hot. Uh, And if you are not able to whiten the knife through fire, well, because of the handle, whiten it through fire and dunk in boiling water afterwards. So I guess there might be people, people, though I've never heard of this, that might take a blowtorch to a knife and then put it in boiling water um any of my knives that i kosher i can put into boiling water i've never used fire on them and i'm not using serrated knives for passover because what are you cutting with a serrated knife on passover um if you are using a serrated knife, you're all looking at me like there are things to cut with a serrated knife. Um, if you are using a serrated knife on Passover, buy a serrated knife for Passover. Um, because very often the things that you are using a serrated knife for during the rest of the year are hummets on Passover. So you should you should just buy a different serrated knife for Passover um, and not have to worry about koshering it. Uh where am I? Mm, or if you dunked but did not whiten, and there are not dimples, and you cut something warm, it won't be forbidden, even if the knife has been used in the previous day. So this is just a caveat that, um, or not a caveat, a leniency. Um, if you didn't, if you didn't use the, oh, I didn't read the beginning of the sentence. <laughs> if you didn't use fire, but you did not, sorry. If you used fire but you did not dunk it in boiling water, even if there are those grooves, or if you dunked water, sorry, this is where I picked up by accident, but did not use fire and there are not dimples and you cut something warm, it's it's fine, uh, even if the knife has been used in the previous day. So even if you didn't let it sit for one day in between, which is what you're supposed to do for all koshering items, it's Okay. Uh that's probably just based on what a knife is usually used for uh in terms of in terms of koshering. And if you sharpened it well with a whetstone, which we now know what that is, in every place, and dunk it in boiling waters afterwards, it is effective like whitening through fire if you are able to clean the dimples in it. So if you have a a knife that has grooves or a serrated knife where you can Get it clean enough that you don't need to take it to fire. It's good enough to just, to just put it in boiling water, which again is what most people do today. Uh, and my guess again, without knowing how knives were made back then, my guess is that's because of how knives are made now versus how knives were made back then. Okay. Bob seems to be shaking his head. So maybe I'm wrong, but he'll tell me.
1: Now my question is, would you go back and look at the Hebrew and see whether it, what it's actually saying when it says sharpened it well with a whetstone in every place? It doesn't, that, that sharpened has a very specific meaning when it comes to knives and sharp edges.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't, I wouldn't be able to translate this word any other way than sharpen. Okay. Um, but but it is it's basically saying and you would sharpen it with a sharpening tool. <laughs> so the English is using the word whetstone, but here it's saying just uh, with the okay. thing that sharpens.
1: My, my point is this. Yeah. When one is sharpening a knife, yeah. one is creating a very fine edge at right. the edge of the knife. Right. Sh- you, sharpening the rest of it is a nonsensical phrase. Mm-hmm. Now, if it said polish the rest of it. Uh-huh. It might make sense out of that. But and I don't want to get a long discussion, but I just say yeah, yeah. There, there's something very weird about that phraseology.
0: Yeah, my guess is that where it says Bechol Makom, which is what it says right here, is that what it means is that throughout every groove. So not just the top of it, not just the middle of it, but like the the entire the entirety of the grooves of the knife the knife, I don't think that it means the part of the knife that doesn't need to be sharpened is my guess. But yeah, the cholma you're right is um is a very general statement in terms of what you would be doing with the knife.
1: You know, the, the thing is the edge of, the the sides of your knife touch generally touch the food. Correct. But if you are just sharpening the knife, you generally don't touch more than the very you know last tenth of an inch. Yeah. Of the edge to the stone. The rest of it you might polish with a scotch brite. You know, you if you had a sand a very fine sandpaper, you might use that to yeah clean off tarnish and such, but you wouldn't use the whetstone for it. So again, it's this is one of those things where I sometimes wonder whether the rabbis even knew what they were exactly talking about, but that's a whole nother discussion too.
0: Yeah. Again, I think that we're talking just about a different kind of knife back in the day. I think knives were just being made differently, and so it's possible that, unlike our knives today, they were being sharpened more more completely, whatever that meant, than than how we use them today. But I I have no no way of knowing unless um, I have a knife specialist from the five hundreds. So, uh but that would be that would be my guess. Uh, But great, great point. Thank you for having us go back. Okay, so now we're at um, Simon 122. And my guess is that this is this first one is actually going to take us till the end. Maybe we'll get to the second one. But this is um, this is a phrase that is used very often in koshering. I actually might have brought it up in the past two weeks. But the idea of no ten tam leaf gum. So something that's gonna give it a bad taste. Now, when we are talking about the 160th, right, when we are talking about the batal bishishim, it also works for no ten tam leaf gum. So if you are someone who does not like ketchup, for example, if ketchup ends up in something of yours, it is as if it is no ten Tom leaf gum, not because it's trace, not because it's dairy going into something meat, but because it's adding a taste that you don't like. It's I don't like mushrooms, for example. So if there is an if there is a a dish that has a ton of mushrooms in it, then my consideration of that of that dish could be no ten Tom leaf gum that it is a that it is a food that is going to give off a bad taste. Now, why do we care about what bad taste is? Because it then glues itself, so to speak, onto the vessel. So if something that you do not like is now caked onto a vessel, it's what's called pagum. It's disgusting. So that doesn't have to be an item you don't like. It just has to be what happens to the item when caked on. So... To to make this a little bit more clear, sugar. If you are putting sugar into a pot to make it into caramel, and you forget that it's on your stove, which if you if you tell me you've never done that, you're lying, and you leave it on your stove and it burns, and now it's caked onto your pot, and you have to figure out how to get it off. No longer is that sugar useful to you right it's it's a disgusting item that you would never even choose to eat so again not trafe, not dairy not meat but it is something that is leaving a disgusting taste that's how it works for anything it works that way for the macaroni and cheese that you make and the cheese bits that you can't get off at the end of making that macaroni and cheese it's how it works if you're making cholent and some of the cholent Ends up on the pot and you're scraping it off until the next Thursday, right? That's how, it's how it works with any item. It doesn't matter if the item itself is meat, dairy, pariv, or something you like or something you don't like, but anything that ends up caked on that you cannot remove is as if it's pagum. Now, the other category of pagum that we talked about last week is something in your sink. So if you eat a salad and in your salad you have shredded cheese and some of the cheese doesn't end up in your stomach but ends up on the sides of the bowl that you are then going to wash, you fill the bowl with water in your sink and some of those shredded cheese particles get onto the sink. Is your is your sink dairy? No. Your sink is not dairy. Some people might think that your sink is dairy, but would you go back in into your sink and eat that cheese as if it was leftovers? Absolutely not. It's been touched with water, maybe even soap. It's now gross. It's what's called pagum. So in my home and in many people's homes, I can stop sharing this for a In my home and in many people's homes, you will have separate sinks, separate sponges if you eat both meat and dairy. However, you really don't need that because at the end of the day, anything, if you're, if you rinse your dishes, if you don't rinse your dishes because you have a very powerful dishwasher, then all of this goes out the window. But if you rinse your dishes after you eat before they either get cleaned by hand or go into a dishwasher, any of the food particles that end up in your sink or on your sponge are pogum and therefore a category of its own without needing to be dairy or meat. The reason people choose to have two different sponges specifically is because, as we know, food particles can stick onto those sponges and now you have goopy gross cheese on your, on your sponge and you don't want to then use that for your cholent pan the next day. Could you? Probably. Does it feel weird to us? Yep. So we have different sponges. But at the end of the day, it's not really cheese anymore. It's gross stuff that you're not going to actually eat. Same with a sink. You're not going to dig into your sink to eat something out of it when it's already been washed so to speak with water and with soap and therefore if you have two sinks sure the right side of my sink is meat and the left side of my sink is dairy but ultimately if I put a dairy spoon on the right side is it treif absolutely not and I trade it as if it's whatever I used as the example of that spoon is without having to kosher it is everybody clear what pagum is yeah. Okay. So we only have two minutes. I don't want to get into the next Saif because I think it'll it'll take longer than two minutes. Um, right. So Bob wrote Rabbi Rembaum refers to things like that, like pagum, as a dog would not eat it. I actually think that's what the Talmud says. Um, and that's exactly right. Right. Something that is so gross that not even a dog would eat it is is I think the case. Uh, Jeff, Renee, Tybel and then we'll call it quits.
4: When you're talking about boiling water going over the edge, I mean, you really don't want boiling water going over the edge of the pot on your stove. So I've seen people boil water and then they take a nice big clean rock and put it into the pot so that it will then cause the water to go over the edge. So that's okay.
0: Yeah, that's totally fine. In fact, you're just, you're actually equating two things. So the, the, um, the rock in the pot allows it to boil over (coughs) and the, uh, the, the process of the boiling over happens quicker. If there's a, if there's a rock at the bottom, it also allows you depending on the rock to see if it's red hot or not. And some people care about that. Um, but I've never used a rock. I just let it boil over. Um and it just it it's just dependent on the process. It doesn't you don't have to use it, but it but it helps you with the process of the boiling. Uh in terms of letting it boil over the sides, you don't have to let it do that for you know ten minutes. You can let it boil over the sides and then stop it. Uh it just has to go over the sides at first. Renee.
2: Was the pogum thing applied to um uh, the tray of uh, like the high chair, for instance? Yeah. Like you know, because if Rafi will get meat or dairy on it, and whatever I clean it with, then
0: totally, yeah, it doesn't I
2: mean,
0: so, matter. So, well, first of all, it doesn't matter for a kid under the age of thirteen. That's neither here nor there. But um, but it also it if you are cleaning it off with like a sponge and with um even like a Clorox wipe or something, it's totally fine. Uh because the next time that he uses it, he's eating off of something that's now been wiped down. Now, a high chair can't be usually it's plastic, so it can't be can't be koshered. So for people who who really want to keep it kosher again it really doesn't matter for a baby whatsoever um but if you wanted to keep things separate you could have like a placemat or you could put down a something if that if that's important to you but yeah anything anything that becomes gross after being either washed or handled um is considered pagum Tybal and then mike
2: uh it's just a, a comment yeah. um because we're out of time, which is thinking about this, when you said where you are in California, so many people are veggie or vegan. It's so much easier to ask these questions. Yeah, I'm someone who all my life, I go into anaphylactic shock when I'm near certain nuts mm. and I'm old enough that you, it didn't, there didn't use to be labeling. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a reasonable thing. And I remember through like my childhood and into my twenties, I would ask questions in an ice cream store and I would have to leave because they wouldn't switch. If they scoop butter pecan, they didn't think it was reasonable to clean it. And I even had trouble eating in college, not just about trafe, but about nuts. So yeah. I wanted to say it's all of this is just when you think about these things and contamination of different kinds, how much easier it's become totally. for those of us who are older and remember way back
0: when. Yeah. Yeah. And gluten also. For sure. For sure. Uh, Mike.
4: Yes, uh, with regard to the rock, uh, yeah. not only is the rock intended to, to cause the water to to overflow the pot, but because if you just put a rock in, it would theoretically cool the water somewhat, to, and it wouldn't necessarily be boiling anymore. So my understanding is that if you're using the rock, it has to be heated independently first so that it's hotter than the water, and then you put it in and it boils over.
0: Oh, interesting. I've never, because I've never used it, I didn't know the, the steps of what, go- what comes first. Um, but I guess that makes sense in terms of getting the rock to red hot, then putting it in, then mm-hmm. putting the water and line and boil over. Fascinating. Yeah. I've never, I've never used a rock. So it's never been a thing that I've, uh, focused on, but it is, that does make sense that you would need a hot rock to make sure that the water boils quicker. All right, everyone, this was... Oh, yes, Mike, go ahead. Last word. I was just going
4: to... A little anecdote. Yeah. I think last week you were talking about um, the more you know about Kashrut, the, the more you're, you're able to be lenient yeah. in certain circumstances because yeah. you understand it better. And uh, when my, my older son spent a couple of years in Israel and he came back, he was frum, and people used to ask me, how well, how frum is he? I tell him, he's so frum, he won't even eat in his own house.
0: Right. <laughs> That's very funny. Um... All right. Well, thank you for joining. I will see you next week. Um, Just as an FYI, because this hasn't happened to us yet, uh, next week we will meet... It might be the week after. There there will be once a month that we will not be able to meet because our board meetings are on Tuesdays. So I will let you know far ahead of time. It is not next week, but I just want to give you that update because we haven't met in a month where that's happened. Um, and so I just wanted to give you the heads up, and I will let you know when that's happening the week before. And for now, have a great week, and I will see you soon.